Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. This is Inside the Military Mind, addressing mental health and wellness for service members, veterans, and their families with your host, Wayne France. Brought to you by Family Care Center, offering behavioral health services for both children and adults and specializing in services for military families and veterans. Family Care Center, our family caring for your family. Now, here's Dwayne France. Hello and welcome to Inside the Military Mind. My name is Dwayne France, and each week we'll be talking about mental health and wellness for the military-affiliated population. Coming up in today's guest segment, I'll be having a conversation with Clint Callahan, a licensed clinical social worker with the Family Care Center. Later, I'll be sharing the Homefront Military Network Resource of the Week, Stable Strides. On this week's Insight segment of the show, I'm going to talk about how some veterans experience challenges leaving the military. Our show is brought to you by the Family Care Center, the community's leading provider of outpatient behavioral health for service members, veterans, and their families. Those who serve our country deserve the best that their community can offer. When it comes to mental health and wellness, it's important for them to work with someone that they can trust and can understand their unique challenges and needs related to mental health. Whether you're looking for individual counseling, couples counseling, or management and consultation regarding mental health medications, you'll find what you need at the Family Care Center. Take some time to focus on you by going to fcsprings.com and allow our family to care for you and your family. On today's Insights into the Military Mind, I'd like to talk about how service members leaving the military can be like releasing lions into the wild. Veterans can be like a bunch of caged lions and lionesses that have been released into the wild. When we were in the military, we were strong, we were capable, we were fearsome and wonderful to behold, most of us. We were kings and queens of our domain in many instances. We were also part of a system that supported us in countless ways. I've talked about this before regarding how we meet old needs in new ways that once we leave the military, old rules don't apply. The support structure is gone. Not even counting the camaraderie that is gone, we literally don't have someone that we can call at any time, day or night. In the military, there's always someone on duty, even if you don't know it or you don't use them. If I got out of the army and worked at FedEx, my supervisor wouldn't be available for a call half hour after quitting time. If my wife and I were having trouble, I wouldn't be able to call my boss and ask them to put me up in the barracks because there would be no barracks and it's on me to figure it out. The skills that we have don't always translate. Now, I'm not talking about technical skills in a job setting. I'm talking about social skills, methods of interacting, ways of thinking and expressing. Of course, all veterans know about the need to temper the F-bomb in polite company but sometimes a mission-focused, bottom-line-up-front mindset does not lend itself to easy transition. I don't necessarily believe that there's a military mindset and a civilian mindset specifically, as this implies an us-against-them attitude, but it is certainly a different way of thinking, and adjustments in that thinking have to be made. In post-military life, new situations present themselves. Job interviews, networking, business. These aren't tasks that we've had to tackle before. Just like the caged lion or lioness never had to hunt for themselves. We picked a job when we first joined. We either stuck with that job or picked a new one along the way. We were told where and when we would do that job and received training on how to do it better as we went along. 
I don't mean to say that we were spoon-fed or babied throughout our military career. Instead, we were taught how to do a specific series of tasks extremely well in order to make the military work. We were trained at an exceptional level at our warrior tasks and drills, but we weren't always trained at an extremely high level at life skills. Being released into the wild, being released into the wild is just the beginning. Many of the veterans that I work with feel exactly the same way. Strong, proud, confident, but drop them in the middle of the savanna and they freeze. They don't know the rules, they're not sure how to develop the skills they need to survive, and they look back longingly at the military, as I imagine a lion and lioness would look longingly back at the cage that they were released from. The key, however, is using the same resilience, same skills, same mission-oriented mindset that served us while we were in the military to help us survive and even thrive once we're out. That same never-quit mindset that kept us from falling then can do so now. So how do we do that? First, we need to establish a support structure. So the chow hall is no longer open and I don't have a meal card. I don't have legal on base if I need somebody to look at a rental contract. I don't have the inspector general's office if someone isn't acting quite right. More importantly, I don't have my brothers and sisters to rely on because I'm not connected to them. The answer? Build a new support structure. The networking tools are out there, especially for veterans. LinkedIn is significant if you use it correctly. Veterati is an online mentoring platform where veterans can get advice on a wide range of topics. Find and build your own support structure to replace the one that you lost. You may find that it's stronger because you built it. You also need to learn new skills, figure out how to adapt, temper your enthusiasm, and figure out new ways to do the old things that you used to do. During my transition, I had the opportunity to be part of an election to a school board of the charter school that my children attend. I had one tie the entire time I was in the military and knew how to tie it only one way, the good old foreign hand knot. So what did I do? I went down to the local men's warehouse, explained myself to the clerk, bought a tie, and spent half an hour in the back of the store struggling with learning how to tie a full Windsor. Because I wanted to, not because I had to. I took the time to go to a local Toastmasters club to develop public speaking skills. Change is inevitable for lions and veterans, and we can either change or perish. We need to adapt to new situations. If there's one thing that we learn to do in the military, it's adapt to the operational environment. Every time we got a new supervisor in the unit, everyone cast a wary eye upon them until they understood where they were coming from. We adapted to new duty situations, new countries, new environments every three years. Why is that not the case when we get out? We may not have been trained to hunt, but we were certainly trained to assess, improvise, adapt, and overcome. Why is that sometimes lost when we leave the military? Now, I'm not an animal relocation specialist. I'm not certain about the type of reintegration that it takes to release a lion or a lioness into the wild after years in captivity. I do know that it's a metaphor that speaks to many veterans that I work with, though, and it's a way of thinking about the military transition that puts into perspective. If you're a veteran and you're listening, how have you learned to adapt being released into the wild? Love to hear your thoughts. Share them with us by dropping an email to militarymind at fccsprings.com. Today's interview segment is with Clint Callahan, a licensed clinical social worker. Clint has worked in the mental health field for over 20 years and specializes in therapy for issues surrounding aging, long-term care, chronic medical conditions, grief and loss, depression, anxiety, life transitions, and more. You can find out more about Clint and all the clinicians at the Family Care Center by going to fcsprings.com. Let's get into my conversation with Clint and come back afterwards to talk about this week's Homefront Military Network Resource of the Week. So you've been working as a mental health professional for over 20 years. I'd like to hear more about your background and how you've become involved in supporting service members, veterans, and their families with mental wellness. Sure. Well, over the course of the last 20 years, I have worked with pretty much everything you can think of. I've worked with emotionally disturbed kids. 
I've worked with veterans. I've worked with, man, I've worked with so many different people. It's hard to keep track sometimes. HIV, AIDS, the LGBTQ community. I've worked with couples, mental health, you know, mental health, medical health, long-term chronic medical problems, all kinds of different things. In you know, it's really you find out the more you've done it, the more that all this stuff is connected, mm-hmm. and it keeps it keeps reinforcing that the more, especially with you know everything that's happened in this last year, it's made it even more relevant to why mental health needs to be more accessible for everybody. And the good thing is, is that because of this last year, it is now more accessible to many different people, and that I think has been one of the one of the good things, I guess, that you could say happened during COVID, if you can say anything at all has happened that was good during COVID. No, I appreciate that. This idea of, in, in us in the profession, we have to be culturally competent. We have to understand the, um, uh, the unique nature of the populations that we're working with. And so across those populations, there are some things that are similar, right? You know, mm-hmm. cognitive behavioral therapy works for one population, another. Uh, but then also there's a, a need to understand the unique nature of certain populations, you know, children or LGBTQ or Mm -hmm. military veterans. And one of the things I found really that's most important is when you're dealing with any client or customer or person is remembering that we're all people in our environment. And the environment that we present at one place is completely different than another place, like such as the military men and women that I worked with when I worked as a military family life counselor on Fort Carson, the way that they were as a soldier and the way that they were at home, there was some bleed through, but it also was very different because you can't be a soldier at home. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many couples that I worked with where when they came home acting like a soldier, that was a Mm no-go. And so it's those kind of things. It's understanding that not only is the where you are and who you are, but also what happens around you, who's in your life, how does it affect you? How does your conversation with each other impact improve or create strife and problems in your life and and how to integrate those right you know yes. so a student is one way at school and then another way in the home environment and and they're different but they also have to be an integrated self well we're all you know we all have facets to our personality but it's still the same diamond because that's the way you need to look at things the more that you're able to integrate yourself and just be yourself in every situation the easier it is for you because then you don't have to think about, okay, who am I right now? Who am I supposed to be? How mm-hmm. am I supposed to act? How am I supposed to react? Instead of just being you everywhere you go. I mean, you know, it's taken me most of my life to get to that point. Probably wasn't until about five years ago and lots of being in therapy, helping people go through therapy, and just going through my own stuff that I realized that just being me is enough. And sometimes it can be disjointed, and that disjointed can create, you know, the sort of the strife, right? You know, say if someone um, who feels as though they may not be able to be open with their LGBTQ um, nature or somebody who is a veteran who doesn't understand how to shift between those things, like that, that is a lot of what we do is helping people integrate into the, their whole selves. If there's, some, there's two main things that I've learned in doing this for 20 years, and the first one is we are all making it up as we go along every second of every day. There is no the answer. Yes, I have 20 years of experience to help give you perspective and context to what's going on in your life, which then allows you to look at things differently. 
But that doesn't mean that I'm going to have the answers. And one of the first things I had to learn being a therapist is that it's okay to say, I don't know. Let me check on that. I will get back to you. And the sad thing is sometimes that does not happen for people. And if they don't have that, it makes them then feel inadequate or it makes them feel like they are being told what to do, how to do, how to be, the way to be, which also coming out of the military, switching from that kind of institutionalized thinking to going into civilian life of, okay, now I have to make choices. I have to decide when I'm going to get up. I have to decide what I'm going to do. I have to decide where I'm going to be. I have to decide how I want to be, who I want to be. That's where so many of them get hung up because they're so used to, if they've been in for any amount of time, to go all of a sudden, oh, I have choices now? I don't think I like that. I want to figure out what do I need to do now? Tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. And I'm like, well, the first thing you need to do is learn how to be okay with the choices you make. Yeah, and I'm going to share this in the insights uh, portion, but uh, I describe uh, service members leaving the military as lions being released into the wild, right? You know, they're the majestic beasts, but then now what do I do when we're out here in the uh, in the community, it, it would be interesting, I think, to hear about your perspective working as military and family life counselor. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the military and family life counselor program um, was uh, had been off the ground whenever I was in, and so when I retired in 2014, um, so I'm familiar with the military family life life counselor program. Um, so I'd like to hear a little bit more about that, and then maybe your experience working with active duty service members. Sure. Uh, I worked as a military family life counselor for about a little over two years at Fort Carson. And the military family life counseling program is, for me, it was one of the things that it was the reason why I went into being a therapist, because it is all about helping people process their problems in real time so that they can remain healthy and active and functional. The best part about it is it was, it is, there's no paperwork, there's no documentation, it can't get back to command because the only place that it is is it's in my head. And I'm sorry to tell you, my memory is not that good, so I don't remember everything that you tell me. And even if someone were to call me and say, hey, have you seen this person? I'd be like, I don't know. Because our job there as a military family life counselor is to basically say, what is your rank? What is your pay scale? That's it. If you never tell me your name, if I never know where you live, who you are, even what regiment you're with, that's perfectly fine. You can talk about it. I'm basically about one step from being a Catholic priest when you're on when you're on the uh, when you're on post because I can't tell anybody. My job is to basically just be there to help you walk through the process and understand what's happening with you, how you can look at it differently, how you can work through those kind of things. And the most important piece of it is it helps to destigmatize mental illness because mental illness in the military is still so widely stigmatized, especially because of security clearances, needing to carry a firearm and all these different things. Not that there's not times when you need extra help and you have to go to behavioral health services and you have to maybe get to an inpatient program where you have to do these things because that can be necessary or you may need medication. But that also is one of those things where when it comes to medication, the one thing I really try to get people to understand is sometimes mental health medication is like being a diabetic. If you don't take your insulin, it causes a problem in your body and you cannot function and process things correctly. The same thing is 
in your brain. These things are just medications that bump up certain neurotransmitters that get you to a more balanced level so that you can actually think and make choices appropriately. Because the hardest thing about psychiatric meds is sometimes we don't know if it's the chicken or the egg. Mm -hmm. Is it the thought that is creating the mental health problem or is it the mental health problem that's creating the thoughts? And both of those things run on your neurochemistry. We're basically biological, organic computers run on chemistry and electricity. And, and I think that's really beneficial with the MFLAC program, like you said, um, is it reduces the stigma. It gets mental health professionals one step closer. MFLACs are assigned to particular units, right? Mm-hmm. You have a, a unit of responsibility. Um, and if someone who may not want to go seek behavioral health but need to talk to somebody, they're able to talk to somebody who is a trained mental health professional, not just their buddy down the street. Yes. And the way the MFLAC program is run is there's two separate parts. You have the embedded MFLAC, which is one that is specifically assigned to a unit. But then also what I was is I was a rotational MFLAC. So my basically coverage area was the entire base. My job was basically to wander around and randomly talk to people. I'm sure many people on Fort Carson are like, oh, yeah, I remember that guy coming up to me and asking me weird questions when I was at the park because that's what my job is. It's to let people know this is the program. This is what it's for. This is why we do it because you don't need to live like this if you don't want to. But that's the other hard thing about it is about being in the mental health field, as you well know, is you can lead a horse to water, mm-hmm. but you can't make them drink. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've often added, and if you make the horse drink, now you've drowned the horse and you're left walking alone in the desert. And I think that's one of the things I, I've always said, you know, uh, service members, veterans, even the military spouses, they don't need a very good reason to avoid therapy. So any reason is a good reason. Uh, And so having more barriers to get them to talk to somebody, it's just one more thing that they're not going to bother. But, but, and this is, again, this idea of embedded behavioral health that really started here at Fort Carson, but getting mental health professionals integrated into the group rather than us being a separate group where you go to if you're crazy Mm -hmm. really makes a difference related to that stigma. Well, and a lot of mental health is really about all about normalization. It's about getting people to understand that everybody on the planet feels in some way that they are not good enough. So many people that I've talked to have imposter syndrome, which isn't even a real syndrome. There's no real medical anything about that. It's just what people call it. It's that generalized feeling that everyone's going to find out that I don't know as much as I say that I know. And let's face it, I don't know who's more of an imposter than mental health therapists because our job is to tell you hey this is how you're feeling this is what's going on let's get this all figured out and a lot of times it's like sometimes I don't know there's really not much I can tell you all I can say is why don't you try this why don't you look at it this way have you ever thought about it from this perspective because therapy really is just a conversation it's not my job to tell you you're bad you're wrong your upbringing messed you up it's not my job to do that it's to take where you are now and help you move forward. You know, I appreciate you you bring that that point of imposter syndrome out. I was not a behavioral health professional when I was in the army, right? I was a truck driver, right? And for probably three or four years, or maybe even more than that, after I started being a therapist, I thought somebody was going to kick in my door. Is like, what does a truck driver do in being a therapist, right? There's this idea of 
of of of inadequacy and i get the sense that um, that's what a lot of veterans feel like when they leave the military because they're no longer it's an identity shift they're no longer allowed to be who they were but they don't know who they are and that goes back to that integration piece you know and i mean I, i'm currently working with i'm currently working with people that have recently retired from the military and that they're going through that very experience right now where they're just trying to understand how do i hang on how do i become this new thing that i'm now supposed to be because now i went from i'm gone 12 to 14 hours a day maybe i've been deployed several times i've been in charge of 30 40 50 60 100 men all this different stuff to now i'm at home with my wife with my kid and i don't know what to do mm-hmm. i'm just sitting here going what now what next how do i put the pieces back together and plus you know, a lot of the mem- a lot of our men and women have been overseas, have gotten traumatic brain injuries, have gone through and gotten, you know, have created and accumulated all the wonderful mental scars that happens going through the military service of having to defend yourself, the friends, your friends, maybe watch some of them die, maybe have going through all of these different things where once you start to process that and once you're out, you now have time to process it. Mm-hmm. And then you don't know how to process it because how do you process watching one of your friend's legs get blown off? Mm-hmm. How and, do you process that stuff? And, and, and they don't, this is uh, some conversations that we've all had, but they don't teach us how to do that, in, especially no. in the military and leaving out. But then on, on top of that, um, there's something else that you specialize in, uh, sort of intergenerational trauma. Um, one of the unique things about military service is the intergenerational aspect of it. Um, many service members are proud to have that family history. My mm-hmm. fathers, my uncles, my grandfather all served in the military. Well, the leg- legacy of service can be valuable. It can mm-hmm. also be something, uh, it, it can also be uh, uh, impactful on top of the traumas that we experience, sort of that intergenerational trauma. Mm-hmm. And intergenerational trauma is really about the things you learn from your parents, who they learned from their parents, who they learned from their parents. And the, the best quote I ever heard about being a parent is your job as a parent is to teach your kids and raise your kids for a world that no longer exists. Mm-hmm. I have two kids, they are nine and 12. And I can tell you this, if you would have told me when they were born that I'd have to worry about smartphones, cell phones, internet content, all the different stuff that's available, them having the wealth of the world, literally in a handheld device, and all the good and bad that goes with it, I would have said, you're crazy. There's no way that's going to happen. And yet here we are, where now I have to police and monitor and double check and triple check everything that they do, everything that they go through to make sure they're not exposed to things before they're ready. And that's a piece of the intergenerational trauma part is that when your parents do the best they can, which is what every parent tries to do, but sometimes the best you can do is piss poor. Mm. And that's just because you were raised by people who did the best they could, who were raised by people who did the best they could. And let's face it, in the last 60 years, we've had, let's say we've had many, many different wars. We've had, you know, economic depressions. We've had all these different things that have happened that change the way people view and look at and are able to manage how they live their lives, work with their kids. Can they support their kids? What is happening? What's going on? And then with that comes frustration, stress, anxiety, depress, 
depression, PTSD, all these different things that, again, when are we ever taught how to deal with this stuff? Either you're taught, don't cry about it, push it down, don't worry about it, don't think about it, don't look at it, but above all, don't tell anybody about it because we don't want you to anyone to think that you're crazy mm-hmm. because if you're crazy, then of course that means everything is going to go bad for you. And then if we think about intergenerationally, right? No, um, there's a lot of research on adverse childhood experiences. Mm-hmm. The childhood aces. Exactly. And, the, um, and, and bringing into the military uh, some trauma that you've already experienced, right? Um, yes. and, and it doesn't necessarily mean a negative thing. A lot of the special forces uh, folks that I've worked with have had horrible childhoods and yet were very, very successful. So it builds resilience. Mm-hmm. But the military is as much a running away from something as it is running to something sometimes. It's a combination of both, where I've met many, many couples who, many couples, many individuals that have been in the military where they came to the military because it was, one, they could get a better life because then now they could get a career, get an education, get away from a bad family situation, or they do it because my my dad did it, my grandpa did it, I'm proud to be a part of this country, I'm proud to do all these different things and I'm not afraid to lay my life on the line for what I believe in. But at the same time, it always comes back to when you're dealing with the intergenerational trauma, you don't know what you don't know Mm -hmm. until it's presented to you and you're like, oh. Yeah, the person doesn't know that they don't know, right? 100%. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, when that light bulb moment finally happens, that's what therapy is all about. It's about giving them enough of a perspective shift. And usually it's about 1% or 2% slightly different viewpoint on something that makes them go, oh, wow, I don't have to live like this anymore. I don't have to think like this or feel like this. It's okay to have feelings. And for a lot of people and a lot of you know military men and women, the biggest thing that I kept running into was they got so disconnected from their feelings except for one feeling except for anger anger because it's an action emotion Mm -hmm. it pushes you through it if you don't like it channel it into anger Mm -hmm. if you if you're if you're happy and you're tired and you're frustrated still channel into anger whatever you do channel it into that and it's the most it is the oldest thing in the human brain because that lizard brain that runs that anger subroutine is what anxiety is because anxiety is nothing but fear and that's the thing is when you have fear going on and anxiety, it gets trapped in the emotional side of your brain. And when it's trapped in the emotional side of your brain, you logically are unable to process it. So it, because emotions never make sense. They're always like a feral cat locked in a room. You don't really know what to do with it until you're able to take it out and look at it and help it show, hey, look, this is the way it needs to be. This is what you can do with it. You don't have to just live with this feeling of fear and pain and stress. No, I really appreciate that. And and that idea of anger is the primary emotion for a lot of service members, men or women, right? Mm -hmm. Old or young. Um, and I've heard it described as the blanket emotion. But as you mentioned, it's it's not okay to be sad. It's not okay to be afraid. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we go through some emotional alchemy and we transform that into anger, which unfortunately in the military can be beneficial oh, and, and useful. So. Very much so. I mean, like, again, anger is action. And the one thing you want to do if you're in the middle of a firefight is what? 
do action so you can save and protect all the people around you that that is what your role is in that moment but when that translates to home and being in the environment of home and still having the need to have your head on a swivel the desire to make sure that everything is exactly the way it's supposed to be and if anything is out of line I can't be disappointed about it. I have to be angry about it because I don't know what else to do because maybe I don't know how to even recognize those other feelings anymore because mm-hmm. the entire channel of my emotions is now go to anger because anger will get you through. And that's the part of that's the piece of getting out of the military. That's the part of the undoing that needs to happen. That's the institutionalization piece of the military part that because I've also worked in maximum security prisons and I've worked with prisoners as they left prison and coming back. And it always reminds me of uh, the movie Shawshank Redemption when Brooks got out after being in there forever. Mm -hmm. And instead of being able to function in society, it had been so long, he couldn't function anymore. So the only result he had was suicide. And the sad thing is, is that is still an epidemic when it comes to our veterans and to our active duties. They get so twisted up that they don't know what else to do and so they take the long-term solution to what is always a short-term problem yeah no absolutely and i think that is a lot of uh things to focus on is really sort of that emotional transition as well as a psychological transition you're listening to inside the military mind with me your host Dwayne france today i'm having a conversation with licensed clinical social worker clint callahan so you mentioned anxiety a few minutes ago. Apart from post-traumatic stress and traumatic brain injury, anxiety and depressions are significant concerns in our community, not just for military and veterans, but sort of everyone is dealing with the measure of anxiety. And especially because of the COVID pandemic. Because the COVID pandemic really brought into focus for a lot of people the cracks that before they could gloss over because they were busy. They had things to do, places to go people to see, work to perform. Then all of a sudden, everything hit pause. And when that happened, it didn't just make people frustrated and sad and angry, but it also took away their sense of, I can at least reasonably predict the next two to three weeks to the month of what my life is going to look like. And now that's gone. So without the ability to have certainty, to lose the ability to even have the illusion of certainty took a lot of people and knocked them completely off guard, which is why we had greater instances of alcoholism, domestic violence, suicidality, all these different things escalated because of also you were cut off from any ability to talk to anybody because we had to stay six feet away. You had to wear a mask. You had to do all that stuff. And I saw all this stuff because I was still out in the community doing the work as an MFLAC on post during the height of all this stuff. I did occasional stuff via tele, via tele and via the telephone and via the uh, computer. But most of the time, I was in person with people six feet away wearing a mask. Luckily, I learned a lot doing teletherapy when I was in California for a decade of doing phone therapy with people that I could read people better than before. Mm. But most of what we do when we read people is we read their facial expressions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How easy is that when half of the face is covered? No, exactly. <laughs> and I think that's uh, really the, the big thing. So, for some people, the pandemic did cause depression. For many people, it was anxiety because anxiety is related to uncertainty about the future. As you mentioned, anxiety is fear. 
mm-hmm. um, and, and anxiety um, can be either low grade or can be overwhelming. And the hard thing is, is you never know what your anxiety tolerance is until you get there. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. the hardest part about it is by not knowing, it's the not knowing piece where as you continue to process this, because first it was only two weeks. Two weeks, it's going to be gone. You're going to be fine. Then it was two months. Then it was six months. Then it was a year. And here we are now, year and four months, five months in, and we still have enough uncertainty that we don't know what's going to happen next. It's gotten more normal, which is helping people to get back to normal, whatever normal is, but it's never going to truly be normal again, because how could it be? Everybody, the entire planet, experienced basically trauma. And so we're trying to figure out how do we now process our way through this so that we can make sense of it, so that we can go back to finding some kind of peace and contentment again without always feeling like, well, we have to look over our shoulder. Mm. I mean, I know for me, it's been weird where I've, I've been vaccinated now for two months. I haven't had to wear a mask in most places. And the first two to three weeks after not wearing a mask, it felt so strange. Mm-hmm. I felt like I was walking around naked which was so weird because it was just a piece of cloth over my face. But yet it added this extra layer of security that we got used to. And now all of a sudden that was gone. And so now I actually had to control my lower facial expressions in therapy. <laughs> it's in, in, I'd be interested to hear your point of view on the impact. You talked a little bit earlier about your kids um, raising your kids in a world that you weren't prepared for, right? Mm-hmm. But the impact on social media and, and mm-hmm. yeah, media in general, but even social media mm-hmm. on either reducing or in many ways increasing anxiety for people. The, I actually have, we've, well, my kids and I and my wife, we've all watched uh, the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, where it talks about how social media has transformed the world and what social media does to the human brain. Because basically, in a nutshell, what social media does is it triggers the dopamine response in your brain to give you that instant pleasure hit of just, oh wow, oh wow. And the way they structured it was the most effective way whenever you do any kind of therapy is intermittent reinforcement, which is where every time you're not gonna hit it, you could get it one time and then another time you could get it one time and then six times later then you could finally get it and it creates this intermittent reinforcement piece which then triggers these dopamine hits which makes you want to continue because dopamine is short-term happy versus serotonin which is long-term happy but the problem is the more dopamine you have in your system the less serotonin your body produces and the faster you can become depressed And that's the part that is really hard about it because in a world where likes and hearts and social media and Instagram and Snapchat stories and all these things are becoming really big business, it also is having the detrimental effect of you feel like you're connecting with other people, Mm -hmm. but you're really not connecting Mm -hmm. with other people in a way that is neurologically and biologically correct because you're not getting the oxytocin hits, you're not getting the correct neurochemistry to really bond with that other person. Mm -hmm. And so then what happens? Well, all of us have a AI empowered computer pointed at our brains that know us better than we know ourselves, 
that can sometimes predict what we want before we even know it. Have you ever opened your phone when you were just talking about something and the first thing that pops up is that thing you were just talking about and you're just like, okay, I guess someone really is listening to what I'm saying. Maybe not be my wife, but my phone <laughs> is. And it's those kind of things that as you go through that and as you look at that, it also is creating these pockets of where if you want your opinion to be heard, you can find a group now where only your opinion will be heard. And nobody will argue with you because they are in agreement with you. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the things that's caused a lot of the splintering and the polarization between people is because we used to get our news from three to four major news outlets. And there wasn't much polarization or difference between the three of them. There was a little bit. But now it's everybody gets their own individual view of what the world looks like, thanks to all the algorithms and all the stuff that we use every day. It's big data. That's the, that's the new currency. And really, I think there's that, um, going back to anxiety, if you are within this echo chamber or this closed group in which they're amplifying all these fear-based messages, um, then what your brain is hearing is, I, I should be anxious. I have a right to be anxious. There's things to be anxious about, which through neuroplasticity just reinforces mm -hmm that anxiety response and that's the thing is the anxiety response and the fear response is one of the oldest responses in in mammals in anything that's really alive is everything has a basic fear response but like you said when you're in that echo chamber where it keeps saying yes that's true yes that's true yes that's true your brain can't tell the difference between an actual tiger chewing on your arm or the anxiety tiger that's chewing on your arm it can't tell the difference between what is just in your head and what's in reality. And so then when you start to be anxious, it then creates a lens of anxiety from which you view the world. And the lens of anxiety is not one that shrinks things. It magnifies things a hundredfold. It's when you look at this feeling you're having, which somebody else may look at and be like, well, that's like a two. But for you, that feeling is always an eight because of the magnification of the anxiety that makes you then feel like, oh, I have to be anxious. I need to be on guard. I need to make sure everybody around me is safe. I need to make sure I'm safe because anxiety has one subroutine that it runs. And the subroutine is, I am going to die. This is going to kill me. I need to survive. Even though it's all in your head, you still feel that in your body like it's like someone is actually pointing a gun at you, like someone is, like a tiger is actually stalking you, ready to eat you. You, you can't avoid that because that's biology. And that's the, in, in talking about avoiding it, it can be overcome if you're trained to overcome it, which now we go back to talking about military and veterans, right? Mm -hmm. The reason why I started jumping out of airplanes is because I was afraid of heights. Yeah. And I wanted to go forward through that and overcome it, but I overcome it through jumping out of airplanes 37 too many times in my military <laughs> career. But the military does a very good job of causing you to face, put you in a fear-inducing situation mm -hmm. and then cause you to be able to overcome that fear so that in the event you have to do that in combat, it does that. Up, over, around, or through. Mm -hmm. That's one thing I heard very many times from the military population that I worked with mm. is that that's what we do. We go up, over, or around it, and if we can't go up, over, around it, we figure out a way to go through it because that's what we have to do. But just because that's what worked in the military doesn't mean that's going to work in your civilian life. Mm 
-hmm. because sometimes you run into a situation where you get caught for speeding or for something where a police officer pulls you over. And if you're in that aggressive state of, I need to go up over around or through because this person is impeding me from reaching my goal, then you can create more problems for yourself mm -hmm. because not because you want to, or because you disrespect authority, but because your brain is programmed to do this because that is what happens is our brains are nothing but biological organic computers that run on stories that we tell ourselves mm -hmm. and depending on the stories you believe changes your perspective and changes your view on how things are in the world and I, I think that's a very important thing for people who may not be familiar with the military understand and, and I was working with a veteran one time who was involved in the, the criminal justice system um, and uh, the police had been called for, you know, a, a verbal altercation. Um, and he was anxious, obviously, being in this situation. Um, and as he was pacing and he started finding himself, this is what he was recounting. But then the police officer put their hand on their firearm. And he said, I leaped towards the police officer. And halfway there, I caught myself and realized I'm about to do something really, really dumb. But it was instinct based on his military training, mm -hmm. where he didn't learn how to translate that into post-military life, where something that was protective in one environment became dangerous in another. And there's a very thin line between when you do something for protection and when you do something that looks threatening. Because it all depends on the situation, the environment that you're in, the people that you're around. Because in any other situation, if let's say he was in a store and it was a store, a person who's going to go shoot up the store, and he did that and stopped the person from doing that, he would have been a hero. Mm -hmm. But in that situation where it was a police officer, but he still, it still kicked that military training in, which that's what training, that's why training is amazing, because it's designed so you don't need to think, so you just act, so you just do. But the problem with that is, is when you just do, sometimes when you just do, it is the wrong thing to do, even though you don't mean to do that. Did I say do enough? <laughs> it, it, but, it, but it is that action oriented. Again, it's that, you know, up, over, around, or through is that I need to take action. I think what, what therapy can benefit, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, is to go beyond that. You don't take that away, but you have the ability to go beyond that and control that urge so that it's, it's a, a little bit more within your hand. And yeah, therapy is not about, my job is not to brainwash you and to make you think or act or be something different. My job is just to help to give you perspective and to help you understand context in a more efficient way so that you don't get stuck in these repeating patterns that continue to get you into trouble. Because again, if the brain is a storytelling machine, the story you tell yourself Sometimes it's something you're not even aware that you're telling yourself because it has become training. It has become so ingrained that it feels like, oh, well, this is just the way I am. This is just automatic. There's no way that I could possibly stop this. And so for my patients that I have with that, I usually tell them the first thing, there's two things you need to do when you begin to feel anxious. The first thing you need to do is stop and breathe because the first thing that anxiety does is it stops you from breathing because it triggers the fight or flight response, which then you're only breathing with about a third to a fourth of your lungs. And then that makes you feel like you're drowning. 
And so then that makes you more anxious because now your brain's not getting enough oxygen. So then it starts to breathe faster, which then elevates your heart rate and elevates your blood pressure and makes you feel hot and makes you feel sweaty and all of these things, which then continues this pathway of triggering this anxiety response, which is a biological response. But if you can slow down and take a breath, just take one breath, hold it for three seconds and let it out and let your brain think. In that three seconds, you'll probably think of 16 different things that you could have done or more. And that will slow you down so that you can make better choices. And that is one of the hardest things because when you're feeling super anxious, it usually narrows itself down to one choice. It's either fight or flee. And in the military, guess what that choice always is? And it usually is, and it's, and it's that fight, but also that idea of taking a breath or grabbing a drink of water, that's telling your body, because you don't do those things when you're in danger, exactly. right? You're doing those things when it's safe. And so you're, you're almost hijacking your body and, and tricking itself into thinking it's safe, which, with it, which it actually is. Well, it's, you know, it's again, it's reminding yourself who's in control of this. Is my body in control of this or am I in control of this? And by reaffirming that you're the one in control, it gives you the ability to slow down and then analyze what actually triggered this. Where did this come from? Why do I think this is a threat? Is this really a threat? That's why for many of my patients, I have them basically have an anxiety journal where when you feel anxious, write down how anxious you feel, what you're feeling, what you're thinking, and rank it. Give it a zero to 10 number. 10 mean I'm so anxious that I'm gonna completely lose my, you know, everything. Or that, you know, one being I'm calm and it's not bad. Usually when they do that, then I say, come back. Look at it a couple hours later. Go do something else. And then I want you to look at it and I want you to tell me, what was that number really? And is that true? Because that's the first thing that they need to ask themselves. Is this really true? Or is this just a reaction to something else? And I think going back to your conversation about COVID and the impact of COVID on anxiety, and even now as we're coming back, and obviously there's the concern about the Delta variants yes. or a resurgence of COVID or those that are anxious about the vaccine, whether or not to, or anxious about people being anxious about that, like all of that, all of those are, again, things that people could look at and say, you know, what is the real danger here versus what is the danger that I believe from these echo chambers I'm in? And that's the hardest part about it is that where do you go now to figure out what truth is? Because the truth also has kind of been hijacked in a way because everything's become such an echo chamber. Because now there is a news station for every point of view. There is a Facebook feed or a Facebook page or a Facebook group that you can be a part of that just reinforces your beliefs and your thoughts and the way things are. And so where can you look outside of that? And that's part of what, as a as a as what I hope I am as a good therapist, my job is to say, well, have you thought about looking at it like this? What about the opposite? Could that possibly be true as well? What do you think about that? To get them just to begin looking at things from a different perspective. Because really, all you need is one or 2% shift in the way you look at something to make it seem not so scary anymore. Because most things and most people in the world are just trying to live their lives and be the best kind of person they can be. 
Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I, I often describe therapy as the effort of sort of like that optical illusion where the two ladies become a goblet, right? Yes. Helping people realize that the goblet is there and they're not just looking at two ladies. Well, and that it's okay to see both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because the thing that most people have trouble with when it comes to emotions is how is it that I can feel anger and joy and sorrow and frustration all at the same time? Am I not supposed to just feel one thing at a time? And the answer is no. Emotions are complex. Emotions are living things. They're a part of you and how you view the world and the way you view the world. So having like, you know, a seven layer dip of emotions about something is completely okay. But it's also allowing for you to feel all the different emotions and try and make sense of it. That's also what therapy is about. It's about helping you to make sense and understand that your emotions are not there to harm you. They're there to give you guidance. They're here to give you a deeper understanding of things. And, you know, that's one of the things that makes it sometimes the hardest part of this job is when you're with someone and you're working with them and you're helping helping them walk through it and you see them hit this wall over and over and over again and you just want to say, take one step to the left and there's the door. You've always had the keys in your pocket. You don't need to be a prisoner of this anymore. There's the door. But the problem is, until they see it, they will never see it. And that's part of our role, is to help them to kind of take the blinders off so they can look around and go, oh, this is where I need to go. This is what I need to do. I can be free. Three feet to the left and the path is a lot easier. Yes, it is. So I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Well, thank you. I'm glad I was here. So I hope that you appreciated my conversation with Clint. We'd love to hear your thoughts. If you want to drop us an email at militarymind at FCCsprings.com. Next, I'd like to introduce you to this week's Homefront Military Network Partner of the Week, Stable Strides. At Stable Strides, they provide health and healing through horses. People of all ages and all different backgrounds come to Stable Strides to restore hope, renew their sense of being, and regain their independence. They get to hear children develop language skills, be part of a soldier letting go of the trauma of combat, and witness healing through the bond of horse and human. Stable Strides is a 501c3 charitable organization that was founded by Gay O'Rourke in 1981 when a community member asked for adaptive horseback riding lessons for his child with a disability. Gay realized that there was a lack of access to equine-assisted therapeutic services in the region as continued requests for service were received from community members and medical professionals. Formerly known as Acts 1911 and the Pikes Peak Therapeutic Riding Center, their mission is to significantly improve the lives of individuals through connection with horses. They accomplish this by providing equine-assisted activities and therapies including mental health therapy, physical, occupational, and speech therapy, and adaptive riding. The inclusion of the therapy horse makes Stable Strides unique. People needing therapeutic services are often reluctant to seek help for many reasons. The most common is the stigma around mental health therapy, the drudgery involved in physical therapy, and not experiencing the desired impact with traditional treatment. Motivation, as well as confidence, are found when a therapy horse is added to the mix because most people are curious about horses but have little exposure to them. A client who struggles to say no or set a boundary in a human relationship learns that creating space with the horse instills empowerment, confidence, and practice in setting healthy boundaries that carry into relationships that they're struggling in. If someone can set a boundary with a thousand-pound animal who's choosing to learn with them, they can set a boundary with others to aid in their mental health. 
Populations served by Stable Strides include children, adults, seniors, service members, and veterans who have physical, developmental, or mental health disabilities, symptoms, and or conditions. Most commonly addressed at Stable Strides are depression, anxiety, PTSD, substance use disorder, ADHD, autism spectrum disorder, adjustment disorder, developmental delays, bipolar disorder, epilepsy and seizure disorders, cerebral palsy, speech delays, and traumatic brain injury. Veterans who are struggling to communicate and ground themselves after traumatic events of the past can sit in a space with a partner that allows them to show themselves and be themselves without judgment and helps regulate the energy of the space to bring comfort, mindfulness, and grounded self to better navigate the outside world that's sometimes filled with noise and chaos that's unbearable. Being part of a program that enhances strength, balance, confidence, and encourages connection is a blessing some experience at Stable Strides. Years of physical, occupational, and speech therapy, or POST, can give progress, but a child who then attends an eight-week POST session with an equine partner can suddenly sit for long periods of time, can make eye contact with a parent or caregiver, or gains more stability in their body. These are the experiences of work at Stable Strides. As El Paso County's oldest and largest provider of equine-assisted activities and therapies and Southern Colorado's only premier accredited center with the Professional Association of Therapeutic Horsemanship International, Stable Strides helps over 750 children, adults, seniors, service members, and veterans each year address physical, developmental, and or mental health disabilities, symptoms, and conditions. Stable Strides program services teach some of El Paso County's most challenged community members the skills they need to survive. Services provided improve the level of independence and strength and protective factors for each client. It can be very satisfying to watch a nonverbal child who struggles with touch reach out a hand and graze the nose of a horse while watching the same horse lean into that experience and sit in the space with that child who struggles in his world with other human contact, but that can connect with his equine partner. Increased independence allows clients to seek and maintain employment and reduces reliance on government programs and assistance. Strength and protective factors safeguard clients from future vulnerabilities, promote resilience, enable the client to mitigate risk in their own lives and community. Stable Strides helps ensure a variety of effective therapeutic services are available and accessible to the residents of the Pikes Peak region. Over 74,000 El Paso County residents have a disability. El Paso County is home to nearly 150,000 service members and veterans in five military installations, with military populations having a documented need for therapeutic services. A 2020 study from the Colorado Attorney General determined that available data indicates an overall concern for residents of all ages in regard to suicide risk in El Paso County, which was also home to one-sixth of the entire Colorado's opioid-related deaths in 2019. These demonstrate the need for access to varied therapeutic services in El Paso County. Additionally, most health agencies are unable to provide equine-assisted services along with other therapeutic services due to the costs, facility, and expertise required. Numerous area health agencies, including Children's Hospital Colorado, UC Health Memorial Hospital, Cedar Springs Hospital, Fort Carson's Evans Army Community Hospital, and many others rely on Stable Stride services to ensure that their clients have access. This reliance is due to their continued commitment to excellence, each client's needs, and maintaining PATH Premier Accredited Center status. Clients experience a variety of results at Stable Strides. People who would not otherwise seek mental health therapy do so. People with physical disabilities gain the ability to move their bodies in new ways. Children with sensory disorders find inner balance and calm. Common impacts experience include improved physical ability, movement, decreases in anxiety, increased confidence, independence and coping skills, and emotional intelligence, and an overall healthier and enriched life. 
Stable Strides clients report improved physical and or emotional health, higher engagement with a therapeutic process at Stable Strides than in a traditional setting, enhanced relationships, and increased satisfaction with work and school. Ultimately, Stable Strides can gain the skills and abilities needed to thrive. You can find out more about them at StableStrides.org. So thanks for checking out the Homefront Military Network Partner of the Week. If you'd like to find out more about the Homefront Military Network, you can find them online at HomefrontMilitaryNetwork.org. And if you'd like to find out more about the Family Care Center, you can find them at FCSprings.com. The Family Care Center is the Pikes Peak region's leading provider of comprehensive behavioral health for service members, veterans, and their families. They provide you and your family with a range of outpatient mental health services, including individual, couples, group, and family therapy, as well as medication management. Heighten your emotional wellness and receive the professional care that you need from the caring and highly skilled team at the Family Care Center. So thank you for taking the time to listen to the show. It'd be great to hear your feedback. I'd like to answer any questions you may have or what you would like to hear about. What topics about military and veteran mental health are you interested in? Send me an email at militarymind at FCCSprings.com, and there's a chance that we'll discuss it on an upcoming show. I'd also like to remind you that the information provided on this show is for educational purposes only. While I am a licensed mental health professional, I'm not your licensed mental health professional. If what we discussed on this episode brings up any concerns for you, it's highly recommended that you consult with a licensed mental health professional. Stay tuned for another great show next week. And until then, remember, you're not alone, ever. You've been listening to Inside the Military Mind, addressing mental health and wellness for service members, veterans, and their families. Sponsored by Family Care Center, Behavioral Health Services. Our family caring for your family. FCSprings.com. Tune in every Saturday at 11 a.m. for Inside the Military Mind on KPPF. And listen to the Companion Podcast on Podbean. Family Care Center is a comprehensive outpatient behavioral health clinic providing critical mental health support to service members, veterans, family members, and our local community. Family Care Center focuses on the mental health and wellness of those who have served our country's military by providing best in-class evidence-based therapy, medication management, and transcranial magnetic stimulation. Family Care Center's clinical staff is dedicated to meeting every client's outpatient behavioral health care needs. This is Dr. Chuck Weber, inviting you to Learn more at fcsprings.com. Family Care Center, our family caring for your family. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.